Hey everybody, it's Connor, your podcast producer. Welcome back to the Elbert Connect podcast. Pat is chatting this week with Paul Moore of Wellings Capital. Paul's been investing for almost 20 years. He's seen it all. He's written books. He's the host of the podcast, How to Lose Money, and he's been on tons of other podcasts. He's got lots of information to share with you. Really hope you enjoy the conversation and you have yourselves a great week. The main reason we started Connect is to give everyone the opportunity to do what I did. We wanted to be able to offer the real estate community, especially locally, something new, something that was fresh. And if we can help a couple people change their lives through this education. Just one person or two people coming up to me saying, man, that was awesome. Like what you put on was great. And it'd be a huge win for everyone. If you've gotten any value at all from this Yellow Bird podcast, make sure to like, subscribe, and rate us on iTunes. All right, what's up, everybody? You're on the Yellowbird Connect podcast. This is Pat Flynn. Today we have with us Paul Moore. Um, so Paul's got a very extensive background, and similar to me, he comes from an engineering background, um, lived an entrepreneurial lifestyle, had a bunch of things going on. We're going to get into him today. Uh, he's going to add a bunch of value to both people that are just starting and for people that you know, I have talked to before that are looking to get more into the commercial side of things. Um, have their work money work for them a little more passively. So welcome, Paul. Hey, great to be here, Pat. Could you, let's just get started with, uh, could you tell us a little bit about your background and uh, what your focus is right now? And just a little bit about your path to get where you are, and then we'll dig into it as we get going. Absolutely. So I sold my uh, company after five years at Ford. I sold my company that I started five years later to a publicly traded firm and I was found myself at 33 years old with a couple million dollars in my hands and I thought I'm an investor now <laughs> and uh, I actually found myself I was a speculator I didn't know the difference I you know investing is when your principal is generally safe and you've got a chance to make a return but speculating is when your principal is not at all safe and you've got a chance to make a return. And so I was a speculator and I learned a lot of hard lessons. I made a lot of money, but I lost a whole lot of money as well. And I found myself actually a decade later to the month, two and a half million dollars in debt. And uh, it was hard to climb out of that. Oh man. Can you tell me a little bit, just because I'm a big mindset guy too, you, uh, you, you, you um, have an engineering background, Ohio State, right? Right. And can you tell me a little bit about, you know, because I went to engineering school too. They teach you a trade, right? And you, they teach you to go out in the real world, be an engineer, uh, an analytical person. How did that transition work for you originally working, you know, as an engineer for Ford Motor Company and then deciding to build your own company? How was that transition? Was it a book you read? Was it something just deep in your head that didn't allow you to just do the engineering thing for the rest of your life? What was it? Yeah, you know, the truth isn't all that glamorous. The, the truth is that when I was in high school and going into college, I didn't have good guidance. And, you know, if I would have known who I was, if I would have taken some personality tests, for heaven's sakes, I think I wouldn't have been an engineer. Now, I was at the top of my class. I mean, I was top three in my class, at least, uh, out of like 100, but... Nevertheless, I wasn't really designed to be an engineer. I was I think I was designed to be an entrepreneur and a salesman and, and a marketing guy. And when I discovered marketing in my MBA program, 
I realized that's what I really want to do and was probably designed to do. And I didn't really even know how deeply that went until I was in my late 40s, I think. Interesting. So let's let's start with uh, let's start with your first company. Was it a recruit? It was a recruitment firm. It was an HR outsourcing company for people really in the business. They would recognize Administaff and basically uh, companies like that. It's it's a PEO company, a professional employer organization. We did payroll taxes, benefits, workers comp, and uh, basically allowed companies with five or ten or twenty employees to tap into a group of let's say a thousand employees, which we did by putting all these together, and then we basically did outsourced uh, payroll taxes, benefits, like I said, and gave these employees access to great, you know, 401ks, et cetera. So a little different than some of the people just getting started that I know listen to our podcast, but what I found in my, because I, you know, I used to be a merchant Marine, worked on drilling rigs. So uh, the, the business endeavor that I'm on now is a little bit new for me in in the structuring of an organization and the problems that you had in your business are I'm sure pretty similar to what we're having now. They're similar to someone just getting started. They're all basic marketing, organizational, operational problems. Can you talk about just a couple things that come to mind as you were trying to build the, your very first company, what were some of the biggest setbacks and uh, lessons learned from just getting started, not having ever built an organization before to building something, you know, as much value of you as you've created, eventually selling that for, you know, millions of dollars? Yeah, you know, so one, I think was the e-myth, the whole concept of the e-myth. And that is, you know, basically, you know, knowing how to do payroll, knowing how to do benefits, etc. But basically, when you have to run a company that does it, you have to have a whole wider set of skills, you know, including managing people. And uh, so that was hard for me at first. And another hard thing was, I mean, basically, I'm, I'm like this super loyal person on the Enneagram. You know, I'm like a number six. And so I, it was really, really hard for me to fire internal staff or hold them accountable. And I was more like, you know, pat them on the back and hope that they shape up. But then I'd find myself getting angry internally, like, why aren't they performing? Well, maybe it's because I didn't tell them. But uh, that was one thing. Another thing was time management. That continues to be my Achilles heel 30 years later to this day, Pat, uh, trying to figure out, you know, how to manage the time I have to really be strategic and do what's most important, not what's most urgent every day. What are a few tools? You, time management is huge, especially for uh, you know a, a someone that's trying to get into flipping or wholesaling. I, I meet with a lot of people that are brand new at it, and I find that they're spending their time doing things that are what I think a complete waste of time when you're first getting started. Can you talk about maybe a couple tools you use um, or how you go about your day as far as time management. Are you a guy that blocks out your whole day in a Google calendar or do you just have some guidelines you try to hold yourself to? Yeah. So as far as tools, um, I think a lot of us have read Gary Keller and Jay Papazon's book, the one thing. I think one of the criticisms of that book has been that they don't have a lot of tools in there to implement it. Well, they actually do. They hired a guy named Jeff, Woods and Jeff Woods and Jay Papazon have an organization called the one thing, whatever organization. And you can pay $30 a month to be part of their group. 
sit in on their weekly podcasts. I mean, not only podcasts, but webinars, training you, giving you actual tools. And uh, they give you something called the 411 and things like that. And so it's super helpful. That's my number one tool. I just bought a book as well by, I think it's, I'm looking for the book over there, Claire Ortiz or something like that. It's called Design Your Day. And it's a simple little two-hour read that really helps you and that kind of transitions to your other question which is uh, the book really teaches you how to strategically block off your day try to take advantage of your best energy times and things like that so yeah ideally pat i block off my day and i try to get uh, you know i try to get some morning exercise and meditation time which i really value and then i try to get some really strategic high level things done before 12 30 and then from 12.30 to about 6, you know, do phone calls and podcasts in general. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a great way to do it. A lot of uh, people I talk to, highly successful people, are very similar in their structure of uh, doing very important high-level things in the morning after getting the blood flowing, getting some meditation time in. So that's, all, you know, very common among uh, high-achieving people. Can you talk a little bit about exactly what you have going on now in your day-to-day, your main focus, and where you're going right now? Yeah, so I wrote um, a book called The Perfect Investment, and it's available on Amazon still. It's been out for about three years. It's about multifamily investing. It's uh, still selling pretty well, but it, you know, I feel a little awkward when people ask me, so tell me about you know, the, the perfect investment, change my investing philosophy and all this. Tell me where you're investing now. And I have to say, well, you know, I honestly believe that multifamily is the perfect risk return, predictable, demographically charged investment. But you know, I honestly believe that uh, it's a little overheated, maybe a lot overheated right now. And so I've. What do you mean by that? I mean, you know, it's it can be perfect, but at the same time, it can also be overpriced. And most multifamily owner operators right now are finding, you know, the smartest ones. A lot of them are selling, because it's very very hard to find a good deal. They're usually bid up incredibly by all kinds of institutional and international and 1031 and IRA money and. All these gurus teaching people to even teaching them to overpay right now. (laughs) Right. And so I have to awkwardly tell folks, you know, hey, I'm I'm expanding. You know, we've expanded our company's focus at Wellings Capital to invest in mobile home parks and self-storage in addition to a little bit of multifamily. So right now we're basically we've pulled together a. opportunities for people to we've vetted these best in class operators in these recession resistant asset classes and we're basically giving syndicate uh, excuse me accredited investors an opportunity to invest with these syndicators through a fund we pulled together so i, I want to get to that after too because that's the funds are really interesting to me in the way they're structured um but you mentioned the the guru side of things right now, and uh, there is a ton of there's there's always the home flipping guru, but right now more than ever I've seen syndication gurus like crazy people out there you know selling courses on syndicating multi million dollar multifamily deals, and they're teaching you in a weekend, you know <laughs> how to go find a uh, you know find and raise millions of dollars to buy an apartment building. 
what kind of effects, and this is coming, this is a question coming from someone that's not really a part of syndication. We don't really actively raise capital here at Yellowbird, not a part of syndication or constantly looking for big commercial multifamily deals. How do you think, do you think this is having an effect on the, on the industry? All these people that aren't really, don't really have a, have not really done a deal before, but they're out there making offers on big commercial apartment buildings and, and trying to syndicate it on the back end. Is that having an effect on things right now? Yeah, I think it's having an effect. Uh, I call them new roos. These are <laughs> gurus who were new and they weren't even, you know, investing in real estate in the last recession 11 years ago. And there's nothing wrong with that except when they tell people that they, it's okay to overpay, it's different this time. My friends, it's not different this time. That's not true. Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, Howard Marks, Ray Dalio, uh, their predecessor, Benjamin Graham, will tell you it's not true. It's not okay to overpay. You're going to get burned. And um, I mean, if you drive around places like Dallas, Pat, you know, you'll hear in the morning on the morning drive time talk radio, you'll hear ads for people training people to do just that. And, you know, I'm sure they're doing a good thing. But, you know, I've heard that in Dallas, some of these people who are trained by this same guy, uh, they're um, they're actually bidding against each other. And some of them are paying 10, 20, even 30 percent more than prudent investors would typically pay. So I'm not blaming the the trainer on that. I'm sure he's great, but you know, it can get uh, it can get a little difficult out there to find a deal and maybe a little risky at this point in the cycle, I think. So you have shifted almost completely in that uh, you're looking for good operators in different spaces. So is uh, what is your focus day to day? You mentioned that you are um, uh, you're connecting accredited investors with, with really good operators is your focus on raising capital or is your focus on finding deals that work under good operators, whether it be mobile home parks or whatever it is. Yeah. So our first and highest priority is to vet great operators. Uh, again, uh, referencing Buffett, you know, Buffett made the decision to invest, I think it was billions of dollars in capital with capital cities uh, to acquire ABC in 1979. He made that decision in 15 minutes, but it's because he'd already spent a long, long time vetting the operators. And uh, so we spent a lot of time vetting great operators. And then secondly, I spent a lot of time creating content, you know, doing uh, blog posts, video, uh, podcasts, etc. And then third, uh, we spend a lot of time talking with accredited investors who might want to invest in our fund. And how is the uh, how is the fund structured? Is the uh, the the in- accredited investors that invest in your fund do they know? Um, I, I I I don't know the exact verbiage of, and, and if I'm saying this wrong, uh, correct me. But I know some funds are set up as like okay, a syndication deal. They know their money's going to this apartment building or this mobile home, but there's other way to structure a fund in that I'm just going to give you this sort of return and it's up to you. It's, you know, it's up, it's your choice where the investor's money is going to go. So how do you guys structure your funds? Is it based on a deal or is it based on you just earning them the return that you promised them beforehand? 
So it's a little bit of a combination because if somebody invests, let's just say in January 2020, uh, they may not know where we're going to be investing that money, but they have very, very clear criteria. We're going to invest in these types of deals, in these types of geographies, this asset class. And, and then more specifically, we even say as we vet and bring on operators, here are the details. And you can look at all of our due diligence results on each operator. So it's not blind. They know where exactly we're, we're investing. At the same time, it's sometimes future-oriented. They don't know yet where that will be. Where are most of the assets that you're invested? What, I mean, where is your focus now as far as assets to be invested? Is it, you mentioned mobile home parks. Is there anything else? And what type of returns are you seeing on this stuff? Yeah, so our I'd say our fund right now we have 33 assets this year uh, in 2019 in our in our larger fund, and uh, I think um, about 70% of the money is tied up. The equity is tied up in self storage. Uh, about 25 or more percent is tied up in mobile home parks, and the last five percent or so is tied up in a handful of multifamilies. So we love those asset classes because uh, mobile home parks, self-storage, and then to a little lesser degree are very recession resistant. And the other thing we love about those two mainly is there are a whole lot, and I mean tens of thousands of mom and pop operators in those asset classes, which means, you know, a lot of them had over the decades, you know, the attitude, if we build it, they will come. And they did but they didn't have a website, they didn't have professional controls in place, they didn't maximize value, they didn't, they had, you know, vacant land sitting there that they didn't utilize. And so there's all kinds of things that a professional op operator can do to acquire a mom and pop, bring it up to a professional level, and then potentially in about two to three years, sell it to a REIT for honestly a massive profit. You asked about profits. Uh, I'm not advertising and, and saying that this will be the returns in our fund, uh, full disclosure here, but I will tell you that a third party documented uh, the returns of the largest operator that we're investing with, where we're putting a lot of our funds right now, and he's been, uh, his average return, IRR, excuse me, the last two years has been between 64 and 65% annually. Wow. Now, I know that sounds like it must be a mistake, but <laughs> it's true. And if you dive into his strategy, you'll see why he's able to do this. And again, it's the buying from a mom and pop, upgrading quickly, selling to a REIT. That's very, very interesting because you had mentioned marketing before and you had got into marketing, you know, when you started your first company. You can get very, very specific with your marketing, when you know exactly what you're looking for, you're looking for mom and pop operators in the self storage space, in the uh, mobile home park space. So has that been a huge strength for you that you can get really focused on exactly who you're marketing to and the types of marketing pieces you send them to try to try to make those acquisitions? Yeah, you know, it helped that in 2008, um, I took a year, uh, two years off. Uh, I, I had a real estate business going still, but it was more, it became really passive for me. And I took two and a half years to study copywriting. And I, I did it because I thought I wanted to switch out of real estate into copywriting. But it turned out that I 
use those copywriting skills, which is just a subset of marketing to stay in real estate. So that has really, really helped me with writing emails and blog posts, uh, designing other stuff, websites, et cetera. Interesting. Um, another question I really, where, where is your market? Where are you located at? We're in central Virginia. I, when I sold my company 21 years ago, we decided to move to the Blue Ridge Mountains to raise our kids here, and we never had a good reason to leave. Awesome. So a question I like to ask is, I'm we're big on the, you know, don't go out there and spend money on courses and this and that. We're big on if you're new and looking to get into a space, find the person who you want to be in your market and find a way to add value to them, work for them for free. What if there was someone in, you know, someone younger looking to get into the industry in uh, your area of Virginia and they eventually wanted to be you, someone running a fund, choosing assets, eventually raising capital and making these people a ridiculous return. How could they add value to you right now? Um, not really knowing a whole lot about your industry, not having a whole lot of money. Where, what sort of leb work, sweat equity could that person put in to be a huge asset to you? Well, that's a great question. You know, Pat, um, I just wrote a book on self-storage investing. There's very few books on self-storage out there. And uh, my very last chapter prior to the, the conclusion, actually, was a whole chapter on that exact thing. I said, you need to go out and find either a paid coach or better, a mentor where you can go to them offer to add value to them for free and hopefully they'll eventually pay you find you so valuable that they need you on their team and a guy did that exact thing four and a half years ago with us he was a college senior and he now is a not only a, a well-paid employee but he's actually a partner in our company four and a half years later he turns 26 tomorrow and um, he's already done very very well he's i mean already got a million dollars or more in equity just in the last year or two, you know, in the company. And so I highly recommend that strategy. I'm right there with you on it. And uh, yeah, I mean, I have people who come to me every now and then with that request and I give them projects from time to time. And I say, hey, go out and figure out how to get us on more podcasts or go out and figure out how to get us in front of medical professionals. And uh, if they do really well, we might give them more and who knows, it might turn into a full-time gig like it did for my friend. What percentage of people would you say, because I, I do similar things, what percentage of people actually go out and do something and what percentage just fizzle away and you don't hear from ever again? I hate to tell you, but I think it's, <laughs> it, it might be one in 10 that actually yeah. do much of anything, you know? Right. What it's do you a, think? I think it's even less than that, um, at least in the in the wholesale space. And I think it's the main reason is because it looks glamorous on the outside, at least the single family home spaces, flipping houses, HGTV makes it look really glamorous right now. But the reality is to find those discounted houses in a market like Jacksonville is a, is a grinder game. From day to day, it's looking at hundreds of them and finding one that works. So just, I think in your industry, it's the same thing. It's, uh, it's, getting, on, it's getting on podcasts, getting in front of doctors. It's a lot of rejection at first raising capital and someone looking at it from the outside you know not understanding how much rejection and how much it takes to actually be successful in this space is a limiting factor so uh 
it's 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 interesting to see. I love talking to other people about that. But yeah, when, whenever I get lunch with it, someone that's trying to be a wholesaler, I tell them exactly what to do. But most of the time, they'll send me stuff off Craigslist and Zillow, and then they fade away after you know thirty five days or so because that the rejection's just tough tough to take. It's not for everybody. Um, another question I want to ask is about kind of your podcast. It's called How to Lose Money, right? And I'm really interested in that name um, and just how you came up with that. And what is the premise of your your podcast and how it can help people? Yeah, you know, I years ago, I in my personal life and professionally, I would run across these people who were fairly well known and they would be on the stage talking about their great, you know, success. And I would see people sitting next to me in the audience, sometimes just shrugging, like shrinking down in their seat, like, oh, I'll never be able to do that. I'll never be that successful. But as I got to know some of these speakers and some of the people on stage, I realized they had great personal struggles. They had self-doubt. They had problems. They had failures. They lost millions sometimes along the way. This guy I admired more than almost anybody lost $71 million in one deal in the dot-com blow up. And I actually ended up becoming his friend and business partner later. But if those people out there would have known the failure and struggles they had along the way, they'd be really encouraged because they know they have those self-doubts and all that too. So I said, why don't I start a podcast that allows people to talk about their failures, their pain, their losses on the road to success. So we are three years into it now we've interviewed almost 200 people and hopefully pat you don't have any losses but if you do we'd love to have you on the show absolutely that's that's i love that idea that is a great idea because it really does you see these gurus on the stage and you see how you know amazing person they are and all the wealth they built there are tons of struggles on the way to get there and it makes them more human and it gives it gives people that may not be there yet the motivation that they're, you know, they went through those struggles too. So I really love that. And it made me think of a book I read called mistakes millionaires make. Have you read that? that? I I forgot the author. I don't know about it. I forgot the author, but it's really interesting and probably a good way to get guests for, for your podcast because it goes through person by person and these terrible things (laughs) that happened to them and how they were able to come out better on the other end. And it's almost a common theme, almost of, you know, all highly successful people is the struggles they have. Got it. So, um, that's about, that's about all I got, Paul. I, uh, really appreciate you being on the show today, talking about time management, talking about, uh, the perfect investment, your book. I'm definitely going to pick up your book on self storage too. And what, what was the title of that one again? Just invest. It's with the publisher right now. They haven't decided on a title. It's probably nine months away. So, Pat, if you give me your email address afterwards, I'll send you a PDF copy of it right now. Okay. And we will also, uh, I'll put just the the information about it in the show notes. So if anyone wants to, because I know self-storage is, it's another area right now that's coming up also. A lot of of people getting into that self-storage space. Yeah, um, I do have an ebook available now that I think about it. So it's like a 32-page ebook that summarizes the 200-page uh, book. Oh, awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on, Paul. Uh, thanks for all the value add. We appreciate it. And uh, everybody listening, thank you for listening. Thanks, Pat.